From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's long been a goal of our space program, sending a human to Mars. But traveling to Mars would require a 250-day flight. Could a group of astronauts tolerate that journey without major complications? NASA has asked Mayo Clinic to study ways to help humans travel to Mars, including the idea of human hibernation. I think they'll make it. I'm excited. I'm completely, totally sold on this. Because in my lifetime, I'm going to see somebody, a fellow human, land on Mars. That's just incredible. Also on the program, vitamin D is important to bone health, but does it play a role in disease prevention? And healthy summer grilling hacks. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Since Yuri Gargarian, was that before you were born? I think so, That yeah. guy who took the first manned space flight in April of 1961, it was before you were born. Yes, it was. Humans have been fascinated by space travel. Neil Armstrong, remember he walked on the moon in July of 1969? You, were you alive for that one? Yes. yes you were. <laughs> and since then, space programs have been looking to the next frontier, and believe it or not, You know what that is? Humans going to Mars. But a trip to the red planet uh, will indeed present problems for the astronauts, uh, not the least of which is how long it takes to get there. Mayo Clinic has been asked to study whether medically induced hypothermia, human hibernation... What might yeah. help? I can't even believe it. Might help astronauts to endure the medical and logistical rigors of a journey that NASA hopes to launch less than two decades from now. Pretty here to exciting. Dis- yeah. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist Dr. Matthew Kumar. Dr. Kumar, it is great to meet you and welcome to the program. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. To you know, you, it seems like you're excited to be here, but in fact, you're excited to be anywhere, aren't you? So tell us about your, your recent trip to India. Oh, Tom, you know, I've been going to India for the past 40 years. Every year I go, I take a bottle of DEET with me. You know, I, the mosquitoes Keep the bugs are a major up, yeah? problem. Yeah. This year I got too overconfident that nothing is going to happen to me and I didn't take a bottle of DEET. And I got bit by mosquitoes, real bad big mosquitoes. And I ended up getting dengue fever, dengue hemorrhagic fever. And really uh, took uh, yeah, so we don't see that see, in the U.S. Or maybe a, a case in Hawaii. Yeah, so yeah. It, tell us what happened. I mean, and I know it wasn't good. <laughs> but you survived. <laughs> yes, I barely survived. So, you know, I was bleeding internally. Um, um, it is an encephalitis, so it's a high fever. So I was delirious for four days. Encephalitis meaning inflammation of the lining of the brain. Right? Inflammation yeah. of the brain and the right. linings of the brain. Totally Invi- delirious. viral, so there's nothing you could do. Just bear it. Just bear it. And, you know, it's a oh symptomatic treatment. They don't have a, they don't have an antibiotic that they can use. Uh, they don't have a vaccine. You know, it's God's grace that you survive. Or really? you don't. So <laughs> what percentage of, of people who get, is it dengue? Is that how you pronounce yes, it? Yes, D-E-N-G-U-E, yeah. dengue. Dengue fever dengue, or dengue, dengue fever? Okay. How many, uh, what percentage survive? About, huh? four, you know, I mean, 60, how lucky are you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you? You know, the mortality is somewhere between 35 and 40 percent. Really? Yes, yes. Uh, if you have end organ failure, then it puts you, the mortality goes up to 60 to 70 percent. If, uh, you know, what I had, the renal failure along with uh, encephalitis, and I also had viral endocarditis. Every so that's the lining was, of the heart. 
Yes. And you weren't here at Mayo <laughs> Clinic. You were in India. I was not saying India. that you weren't safe there, but I would bet you might have thought, I wish I was at home. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, airlines wouldn't let me fly because they were afraid I was going to die in flight. Oh, my gosh. Uh, they, really? Yes. And they, well, and now, how long does this last? And, and how did they treat it? What remember, did, what this did is they not do? about dengue fever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to Mars here shortly, but i got to hear about this. I mean, this is horrible. Uh, they put me in an ICU, and uh, you know there is no treatment other than just symptomatically giving me IV fluids and some food. Um, and eventually, you know, your body recovers, and you know your immune system fights it back. Finally, huh? Uh, yes, it yeah. took me two weeks. Well, I only know because last year Dr. Tosh told me in an interview, I think when you were gone, that there was some dengue fever in Hawaii and in the southeastern part of the United States. So it actually is not just in India; it is closer to home as well. I was surprised to know that. You know, yeah. I, I did a little bit of research on uh, dengue fever once I had the <laughs> fever. And, uh, so can you get it? Can you get it? Twice? I, I think you could, but you know you had developed active immunity, so well, you know, I would think so. Uh, you know, He's never going to travel without DEET no, again. No kidding. And Spray you know what? On. If you go to Mars, do you think that you need to take DEET with you? Is that something to be concerned about? <laughs> I think I about? would. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about how you got interested in uh, in this. Uh, you're an anesthesiologist, yes, but yet you're talking about Mars. So how are you involved with this? Well, you know. One of my research aspects is uh, therapeutic hypothermia, you know, lowering the body temperature as a therapeutic modality for uh, treating cardiac arrest or for patients with stroke. or with So with stroke or heart attack, you're lowering the body temperature because the survival is better? Survival is much better. You protect the neurons, you know, once your metabolic rate goes down. Neurons, that's like the brain. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you remember, I'm a bone doctor, and we're talking to the lay public here. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's got enormous neuroprotective effects, uh, hypothermia, just dropping the body temperature by about 5 to 6 degrees centigrade. You know, you achieve uh, pretty good neuronal protection. There is nothing out there that can do that. Uh, you know, if you completely cool the body down to about 16 or 18 degrees C, you can stop the heart for about an hour, you know, oh total gosh. circulatory arrest uh, for about an hour. So, you know, hypothermia is a very effective neuroprotectant. That's the one thing that brain. we know for neuro. sure. You, for when the you brain say neuro, protection. you mean brain. Okay. Yes. So my interest, basic, uh, my basic scientific curiosity is more in terms of therapeutic hypothermia. You know, we have been studying uh, therapeutic hypothermia in pigs following traumatic brain injury. Uh, for the past five or six years, and then prior to that in humans, you know, observing how what happens with hypothermia. So when we got called, you know, by some of the co-investigators, they wanted to see if we can induce hibernation, which is very similar to therapeutic hypothermia, um, in astronauts who are traveling to Mars, you know. So it kind of dovetails nicely, therapeutic hypothermia and hibernation. Because if you look at a bear, it's a hibernating bear, it's very similar to therapeutic hypothermia. You know, the body temperature drops down to about 30C or 32C, and the heart rate goes down and respirations go down, and the animal sleeps for about six months without eating or peeing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or urinating. And um, But so, hypothermia, I just, I'm not a medical doctor here, but I just know that it's not good. So is it? 
specifically very carefully managing the hypothermia that makes it okay to even have this conversation? Correct. Okay. It's not just the accidental hypothermia could be dangerous, obviously. Sure. Uh, but, you know, controlled hypothermia, therapeutic hypothermia, you know, controlling it and keeping it in a narrow range of somewhere between 28C and 32C seems to have all the beneficial effects without the deleterious effects of hypothermia. If your core body temperature drops below 28, you start having cardiac arrhythmias, which could kill you. So you really don't want your core body temperature to drop below 28. So you keep it in that narrow range. You achieve the benefits without the side effects. So uh, the idea is if you can get the astronauts to hibernate or you get them hypothermic, they'll be easier. It'll be better for them, easier for them to make the trip? Yes. You know, we, we at least one of the hypotheses that we are proposing is, you know, put them in hibernation, not for the entire trip, but maybe part of the trip, you know, you you cycle them. You know, there are nine astronauts. <laughs> they go to sleep for three weeks, then they wake up, and then the next crew goes into hibernation torpor, and then you wake them up after three weeks. And so we kind of cycle them. You maybe, can do that? Yes. Yes. Really? What about through January, <laughs> there are February, weeks that I'd and like March? To miss. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so uh, you're working in collaboration with NASA. Is this? Are they excited about the work that you're doing? They are. They are excited, and we are totally excited. You know, we got some great team uh, working on this. You know, I got Dr. Kelly Drew from uh, Alaska, or even Toyn from. Uh, Alaska to Center for Arctic Studies. So it's it's just a phenomenal group of people. And I got Dr. Uh, um, Alexander Rabenstein here from Mayo, a neurologist. So we got a great team, and we are looking at it. And I think it's it's uh, we believe it's almost necessary. You know, if you're going to travel yeah. for 253 days to reach Mars, it's going to be a lot difficult to stay in a confined small capsule with nine other people. Yeah, interesting. Dr. Matthew Kumar, he's an anesthesiologist at the Mayo Clinic, and he's also an expert on human hibernation, and we got to hear more about this. And when we come back, we'll ask him, you know, how far is it to Mars? I guess he said it takes 253 yeah. days to get there, and why would anybody want to go? <laughs> Time for a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with anesthesiologist Dr. Matthew Kumar, a survivor of a dengue fever and now <laughs> working. I, I'm, I'm still amazed about that. 35, 40% of people die if they get this disease. That's correct. This oh, is a very so confusing to... conversation. Yeah. <laughs> dengue fever I and know, hibernation. but how can you just not talk about that? <laughs> I, You know, maybe you ought to just stay home next year. Well, pray to the good Lord. That's yeah. good. All right, so when it comes to to um, sending humans to Mars. It's over 250 days to do so, and it's boring, I guess, a long ways to go. And what would be the benefit of hibernating? Uh, Aside from you get a lot of reading done or watch a lot of movies, what's the benefit of having those astronauts in hibernation instead of just sitting for 250 days? Tracy, great question. Hibernation has got two components. One is the observable thing that's sleep. You know, they're sleeping. They're not awake. And the second is the hypothermia, you know, lowering the body temperature. The sleep has a couple of benefits here. One is it immobilizes the astronaut, so they're confined in a pod, hibernation pod, where they're sleeping. So it right away negates the need for activities of daily living. 
that's like, you know, you have to, every day if you're awake, you have to bathe, you, you don't need to space. shave, you need to brush your teeth, you need to do, you know, cook, change your clothing. All the activities of daily living come to a halt right there if they're sleeping. The second is you don't have to um, have things to keep yourself busy. There is no... Uh, you know, need for recreation. You don't have to give this person an exercise machine or TV or something else to keep them busy. Third important component is conflict, interpersonal conflict. Oh. If you remember the Biosphere 2 experiments. Are there women going on this? <laughs> no, wait. I am planning my summer vacation road trip with my family right now, and all of a sudden this is starting to make a lot more sense. <laughs> the, the third component is interpersonal conflicts. They are a major issue. If you combine people in a confined space, sooner or later fights erupt. They start getting in each other's space, and, you know, it uh, it becomes a problem. It's a serious problem. Biosphere 2, that was the number one reason why they just couldn't stand each other. You know, one of the experiments that they oh, had. Wow. Uh, so, I think if they're sleeping, you don't have to deal with all of those issues. Okay, now tell me this. What uh, is the benefit of going into hibernation? Are you? Do you slow down the aging process? Do you slow down your metas- metabolism? What's happening? The second component, that's the first component was the sleep, and the second component is the hypothermia. With hypothermia, yes. You know, your body metabolic rate comes down. It comes down about 7 to 8% for each one degree drop in body temperature. So if you drop your body temperature, normal body temperature being about 37, if you bring it down to 32, you're right there, you got about 40% reduction in your basal metabolic rate. So you need less oxygen. You need to carry less amount of oxygen, less amount of food. You know, those things are pretty good. In addition to reduction in your oxygen and, you know, metabolic requirements, you also have benefit of hypothermia in terms of reducing the intracranial pressure, which is a major issue. So that's the pressure inside your brain. Inside your brain, inside your skull. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the major complications is blindness, which apparently happens as a result of optic nerve neuropathy, the compression caused by a rise in intracranial pressure Hmm. occurring at the point where the optic nerve goes through the hole in the brain to your eyes. So optic nerve neuropathy and blindness can be reduced by reducing the intracranial pressure. So this hypothermia thing has got lots of benefits, as I said, in reduction in oxygen, food, and also reduction in intracranial pressures. Is it harmful to your body to be in hibernation, to be <laughs> to have Doesn't hypothermia like going <laughs> on, if it's carefully managed? <laughs> you, you, again, an excellent question. You know, hypothermia itself is, we're just starting to understand more about hypothermia. You know, there is lots of unknowns and there's lots of problems with hypothermia. We have tried to keep uh, pigs, for example, hypothermic for a protracted period of time. Two of the major issues with hypothermia are, one is infection. You know, infection because your immune system is suppressed along with the other parts of your body. So infection becomes a major problem. Two is, even though hypothermia causes uh, coagulopathy, you know, blood doesn't clot very well, eventually you start getting DVTs and then pulmonary embolism. Blood clots. Blood clots. Okay. Uh, uh, that kills the animal. So, you know, if you have difficulty, it, it rises exponentially after about five or six days, at least in the pigs, we see these animals dying as a result of possibly either infection or as a result of uh, deep venous thrombosis. And then ultimately pee, blood clots. Okay, so now we want to know how you do this. I mean, it seems to me like you're going to have to load an awful lot of ice on that uh, spaceship. (laughs) I I mean, how do you you make someone hypothermic? Excellent question, Tom. 
You know, we had a fantastic breakthrough study here right in uh, Rochester last summer. I had Dr. Kelly Drew from uh, Arctic Center in Alaska, Fairbanks, along with uh, Dr. Oyvind Toy. That's a Norwegian name. Oyvind, if you're listening, uh, sorry I'm butchering your name. Oyvind Toyn. Uh, <laughs> so we, we came here and we did, for the first time, it's a real breakthrough. We have been able to induce a hibernation-like state in a non-hibernating mammal, such as a pig. The, the finding is just uh, phenomenal in terms of, until now, we couldn't do it. You know, we cannot induce hibernation in a non-hibernating mammal, so mm-hmm. we, uh, such as a pig or a dog. By using certain chemicals, you know, we used um, N6 uh, CHA, cyclohexyl adenosine, and then using some other chemicals to prevent the side effects of this chemical, we have been able to stop intrinsic thermogenesis and shivering thermogenesis in these animals. Shivering thermogenesis is a major issue. So uh, tell us what that means. Every time your core body temperature drops below 36.5 or you know, centigrade. Like yeah. Most of my life. <laughs> cold all the I'm time. I'm always cold. Yeah. <laughs> you start shivering, and then there is a sympathetic activity that triggers a non-shivering thermogenesis. So that's common to all euthermic animals. You know, all thermogenesis, meaning your body tries to warm you up. Body tries to, yes, yeah. warm, warm okay. you up, either okay. by shivering or by uh, production of more uh, intrinsic heat. So we have now a technology to stop that intrinsic fight back that every mammal has uh, to bring the temperature back to 37. So we have been able to do that for the first time. So no, we almost have a chemical that can stop the intrinsic fight back or the pushback that the body does. So we can easily induce hypothermia now with these chemicals. Wow, incredible. So uh, you're working with NASA, is yes. that right? Yep. And, and they're serious about this. They actually want somebody to go, why do, why do we want to go to Mars? That's the next frontier, Tom. You know, that's human destiny. You know, Exploring. Na- yes, mm-hmm. exploration is in our blood. You know, NASA has got the timeline. That's, you know, they want to send somebody by 2030 or mid-2030s. You think they'll make it? I think they'll make it. I'm, I'm excited. I'm completely, totally sold on this. <laughs> because in my lifetime, I'm going to see somebody, a fellow human, land on Mars. That's just incredible. It is incredible. It's how many miles? Oh, it's got 34.9 million miles, or 35 million miles, so it's pretty far Basically away. Basically like my summer vacation. Yeah. <laughs> 253 days. <laughs> we can put you into hibernation, and it'll be the best trip you've it ever had. It actually sounds like a dream your aging, and you know, when you wake up, you'll be right there. I you drive, it. honey, I'm hibernating. Hey, it's the yeah. Grand Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Matthew Kumar, he's an anesthesiologist and an expert on human hibernation and hypothermia. We're glad you're alive, and we're glad you're here. Thanks so much. Thank for you, being Tom. with us. It's awesome. Great to be with you. Thank you, Matthew. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn the ins and outs of vitamin D. And later on in the program, we'll talk healthy summer grilling options. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Women, listen up. 
Here's information you need to know about traveling to areas where the Zika virus is known to be present. The major problem with the Zika is if you get Zika while you're pregnant. Dr. Mary Jo Caston explains that mosquitoes transmit the Zika virus. You might not get sick yourself, but there's a very significant chance that your baby might be born with a small head or have other serious congenital problems. Dr. Caston recommends women who are pregnant or who might get pregnant should avoid areas where there are Zika outbreaks. If you have to go to a Zika endemic area, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says women should not get pregnant for eight weeks after their return. The other way that Zika can be transmitted is through sex. The CDC also recommends that if a woman's sex partner travels to an area where there are known cases of Zika, he should not have sex with her without a condom for six months after he returns. And in other news, go ahead, pour yourself another cup of coffee. It might just help you live longer. Two studies published in Annals of Internal Medicine show drinking coffee likely benefits your health. One study found coffee drinking is associated with a reduced risk of death from various diseases. And the other study showed drinking a lot of coffee is associated with a lower death risk in African Americans, Japanese Americans, Latinos, and Caucasians. Dr. Donald Hendrude, a Mayo Clinic nutrition expert, says the two studies confirm that coffee can benefit many people who drink it, as long as they don't suffer negative side effects of caffeine. He says there's a common belief that coffee's not healthy, and he adds there are side effects from coffee that may limit consumption in some people, including insomnia, gastroesophageal reflux disease, urinary symptoms, nervousness, and anxiety. That's if you drink too much. But from a health standpoint, he says these two studies are consistent with many other studies that show overall health benefits. There is fairly good evidence that coffee is associated with decreased risk of liver disease and liver cancer, Parkinson's disease, type 2 diabetes, and even improved mood and decreased risk of depression. Dr. Hensrud says that while these new studies are not conclusive, they provide reassurance that if people drink coffee and are not having any side effects, there's little reason to decrease consumption and they should continue to enjoy it. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you've seen it. You've heard it. There's so much talk about vitamin D out there. And I guess the first question is, what does vitamin D do? Well, it, it does several things, and probably the most important is that it helps your body absorb calcium, which your bones need to stay strong. And also, the vitamin D uh, can play a role in your nervous system, your immune system, and your mu- muscle function. So, I mean, it is an important vitamin. And you can get vitamin D in three different ways. You can get it through your skin, you can get it from your diet, or you can get it from supplements, and it sounds like a lot of people are doing that. Vitamin D is found in a lot of food including milk, yogurt, fish, eggs, and, my favorite, cod liver oil. Mm. The sun also adds to the body's daily production of vitamin D, and as little as 10 minutes of exposure a day is probably enough to keep you from being vitamin D deficient. We know that vitamin D is important to bone health, but there have been other important claims for vitamin D as well. You may have heard it can be used to treat depression or prevent heart disease or even cancer. Here to discuss vitamin D is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, Dr. Sandeep Kosla. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kosla. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Sandeep, nice to have you here. We really need an expert when it comes to the question about vitamin D. And there are a lot of vitamins that our bodies need. We all know that. But, but what's so special about vitamin D? 
Well, vitamin D has gathered a lot of interest, now, not only because of its possible effects on bone, as you mentioned, but because of a lot of interest and some evidence that it may actually be important for other things such as immune function, cancer prevention, prevention of heart disease. So I think more so than any other vitamin, it's garnered this interest because in uh, population studies or epidemiological studies, higher levels of vitamin D seem to be protective against uh, many diseases beyond uh, just bone. Do you believe it? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think the evidence from the population studies is certainly uh, suggestive that there's a role for vitamin D uh, not only in bone but in other uh, uh, diseases. The problem is that uh, these kinds of observational studies are subject to a lot of potential biases and errors. Mm. So they're useful for generating hypotheses. But those hypotheses need to be tested in rigorous randomized control trials. And so far, uh, the, the only, the, the strongest evidence that vitamin D is beneficial is in fact for bone and prevention of fractures. Its role in any of the other myriad diseases that it's been associated with in the kind of observational or populational studies, uh, still really remains to be established. So there is no evidence at the present time that vitamin D is good for preventing or treating depression, that it's good for preventing or treating heart disease, or uh, preventing cancer. Correct. Is that correct? Not from rigorous randomized controlled clinical trials, which is the highest bar of evidence that we all want to see before we recommend its use for those kinds of diseases. And are those studies ongoing? Is, is that what's, what stage we're at? Correct. So there are a number of large studies that are ongoing, uh, specifically examining uh, this, that, that question. And are those studies looking to see if excessive doses of vitamin G, D or just a regular everyday allotment is what is needed? So that's a good question because, you know, there's a lot of kind of discussion and some confusion about right now what's the best amount of vitamin D to take. And, in fact, it's such an important question that the Institute of Medicine uh, actually formed a expert task force to address that question. And, in general, their recommendations were that for most people, 600 units or if you were over the age of 70, 800 units of vitamin D is sufficient. Now, some patients may, you know, especially if they of osteoporosis, we may ask them to take 800 or 1,000 units of vitamin D. More than that probably isn't beneficial and may even be harmful. Uh, the, the safe upper limit that the Institute of Medicine uh, noted was about 4,000 units. There are people out there who are taking even higher levels than that, and that can cause uh, serious side effects. So the studies that are ongoing range from, you know, anywhere from taking 1,000 to 2,000 units of vitamin D, which are still within the safe range. But I think until we know more, for most patients, 800 to 1,000 units is uh, probably a reasonable guideline. And do you get that from your food? Is that a diet? The diet can provide that, or should people be taking vitamin D supplements? It, unless you like cod liver oil or, you know, certain of the foods that you mentioned, it's actually not that easy to get all your vitamin D just from 
foods. Uh, sunshine is a good way. Obviously, that has to be balanced against the risk of uh, uh, skin exposure to sunrise, uh, sunshine and uh, the risk of uh, skin cancers. So for many people, if not most people, some kind of vitamin D supplement is appropriate. And, you know, most multivitamins now have anywhere between 700 and 1,000 units of vitamin D. So in general, if you're taking a multivitamin, that in itself may be enough. Uh, to get you enough vitamin D. So if you're uh, outside, outdoors, no matter where you live uh, in the United States, for a a period of time during the day, let's say a half hour or an hour, and you eat a normal diet, and you're male, do you need to take a vitamin with vitamin D in it? Probably not. If you're getting enough sun exposure, as you suggested, uh, that should be sufficient. Uh, the problem becomes that particularly in the northern climates where people don't get out in the sun enough, especially in the winter months, it can be a problem. And, and we've noted, and many studies have noted seasonal variations in blood levels of vitamin D, which do tend to go down considerably in the winter months and then come back up in the summer months. And, and how about women? Uh, when should they start taking a multivitamin or at least vitamin D? And why is that important? more important for women than men. Yeah, it is more important for women uh, at all stages of life. So, you know, during growth and development, vitamin D is important for boys and girls uh, to absorb calcium and build up the skeleton. Uh, During pregnancy, women actually mobilize, uh, especially after uh, delivery when they're breastfeeding, quite a bit of calcium from bone and it ends up in breast milk. So having enough calcium stores in bone is particularly important even for younger women. And then certainly as women age, the big difference or one big difference between what happens to women and men is the presence of the menopause in women, which really is a major insult to the skeleton, if you will, and causes uh, can cause rapid bone loss. So for those women also, adequate vitamin D is important. That tricky menopause. Yeah. Hey, let's so, talk about that just a little bit more. So if someone has not taken vitamin D or that's not been a part of their health plan, um, that's something that they should reconsider if, as you go through these different stages of life? Yes, they should, uh, and especially as they approach the menopausal years. I think women should optimize their calcium and the vitamin D intake to make sure that their sort of their bones are as well prepared as they can be. Uh, as they face the advent of uh, estrogen deficiency and the bone loss that happens in all women. So how do you know if you're getting enough vitamin D? Well, most people, if they're you know taking about 800 to 1,000 units, will have adequate vitamin D levels. Um, Let's say you're not taking it, but you're concerned, and you're a woman and you're 50. Can you have a check? Right. You, you certainly can have a blood test. Uh, it's called the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, uh, and, and that's a simple blood draw. It can be measured. Um, and the levels that are considered acceptable vary a little bit depending on who you speak to. The Institute of Medicine recommended a blood level above 20 nanograms per ml, whereas uh, different organizations have suggested an even higher level above 30. My own view is above 20 is probably adequate, um, and you don't really need to push it to very high levels. The, the question that I had originally was, uh, who should be taking a vitamin D supplement? But maybe the better question is, is there anyone who shouldn't take a vitamin D supplement? In general, you know, they're safe. Uh, I think uh, the only concern might be uh, maybe patients who have a high risk of kidney stones. They may want to be cautious uh-huh. about their calcium and vitamin D intake because if those patients... 
uh, end up with a little, even a little too much vitamin D that might increase the amount of calcium that they're absorbing and increase their, their chances of getting a kidney stone. All right. Now you know the latest scoop on vitamin D from a Mayo Clinic expert, endocrinologist, hormone doctor, Dr. Sandeep Gosla. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Time for a short break, but when we come back, fire up the barbecue. (laughs) We'll discuss healthy grilling options with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, summer means it's time to fire up the backyard grill and enjoy the great outdoors. And most of the time you can do that in Minnesota. Yes. And you know when you're grilling, uh, hamburgers and hot dogs are always popular. And and don't forget about the brats. Right. But it's not exactly health food. No, no, not at all. Here to share some healthy summer grilling hacks. You mean there are ways to there cook are. on the grill and that are healthy? Yes, yeah. is our executive chef, Jennifer Welper. She is the executive chef with Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Welcome back to the program, Jennifer. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. <laughs> um, my background is culinary nutrition, so I have kind of the best of both worlds with my culinary degree and nutrition degree. What uh-uh. What is it that made you interested in working with food? Ooh, uh, I am a farm girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, grew up with my grandparents and lost my grandpa to heart disease uh, right before I went to college. And he was kind of the glue of the family, and so kind of losing him, it was just like, gosh, you know, if he could have had a little grasp on his diabetes and everything, like we could have had him around for a little that's, longer. That's tough for farmers to do. It is. Even though your grandmother, if she was like my grandmother, probably <laughs> had the biggest garden that you've ever seen. And she's a great cook. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the things that you that we're talking about today. It's how to make uh, your grilling, how to make that a little bit more healthy. Is it even possible? Absolutely. It's what you pick. Um, I think the big thing that we typically go for are hot dogs and hamburgers and brats is they're always juicy, right? You can't really mess them up, right? Unless they're <laughs> caught on fire. Right. Um, but the big thing is, is picking your leaner meats and then making sure that you're not overcooking them. So cooking your chicken right to 165. But typically what I advise people is cook it to 160, leave it on the grill, shut the grill off, let it carry over cook. Everything carry over cooks, whether it's a baked potato, it's a muffin, it's a carrot, um, it's a chicken breast, it's salmon filet, everything continues to cook even though the heat is off. So why is it wrong to cook it too much? Because it dries out. Dries oh, because it doesn't taste good. Exactly. Um, and so the other part is, is when you're looking at something like your leaner proteins, they don't have a lot of fat, right? And so sometimes people want to try to like rush the process and the little bit of juice that is in them, we try to squeeze it out. So then we have really dry meat. And what do we do with dry meat? Throw it away usually. Oh, uh, no. Some lots people of throw it. Yeah, lots of sauce. <laughs> lots of cheese. You know, exactly. If you're in my family, it's ranch. Ranch um, <laughs> So there's all these other um, higher caloric things that we do to compensate. And so really what it's about is making sure that we're just cooking it right. You know, we're so afraid of having like raw fish or raw chicken that we usually go maybe like 15 degrees over. Speaking of chicken, what's your favorite way to grill chicken? Having a nice lime marinade is always good. And how long do you have to marinate chicken? Anytime you have something really acidic, like lime juice, lemon juice, even like white wine, red wine, or something like that, um, a good 30 minutes is more than enough time, especially if you're working with a lean protein. Okay. Because it doesn't have to break down all those other intervisceral tissues because... It already is what it is. Gotcha. So that's your that's your favorite marinated. What sort of spices do you like to put on chicken? Oh, garlic, cilantro. I love cumin. I love a little Tabasco. Um, sometimes just like lemon, salt, pepper. That's always good for me. 
Um, now, is, are you talking about a whole chicken or pieces or oh, either? We're looking for the leanest, so that'd be the chicken breast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's trying to help us be more healthful. Okay, tell me about uh, the vegetables. The big thing is is making sure that you take your vegetables, put them in a bowl, season them in the bowl. So kind of portion out your olive oil and then add your love to it. So onion powder, garlic powder, um, you can do some of those um, like Mrs. Dash blends or any of some of those seasoning blends that are low salt. Um, mix them up and then throw them on the grill. Um, sometimes even doing a little bit of like a balsamic marinade is nice. Any type of acid works kind of in tandem as adding like a salt flavor. So you can use a lot less salt. So if you're trying to kind of limit the salt intake, lime juice, lemon juice, any type of acid, white wine, um, that's actually going to make it taste a little bit more salty. And since we're putting them on the grill, I mean, if they're big planks of eggplant or something, that'll work. But what are we supposed to use to just get them on the grill? Because a lot of them are too small and they fall through. Right. So I think the big thing is kind of cut them to what will work on the grill. Otherwise, get one of those cast iron skillets that have the grids in them. That works just as good. All right, what about um, grilled pizza? That seems to be pretty uh, popular. Is there a way to make a healthy pizza? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, you better believe (laughs) it. I don't want to (laughs) know. Um, so number one, you want to start with the crust, making sure you have a good like whole wheat crust or maybe a crust that has flax seed in it. You know, get something really nice and earthy. And then even throwing um, maybe like a salsa verde or some sort of like nice kind of summery sauce. Um, you can always do marinara as well. And then throw on some grilled vegetables, enhance with maybe some pulled chicken, some pulled pork tenderloin, um, and then garnish with kind of your fancy cheeses i like to call so your blue cheese your feta, feta your gorgonzola <laughs> your pecorino and then have just kind of your melty cheese as kind of the sprinkle so that way it's more of like you've got all of this um high density um filler and mm. then you're still having that really good flavor you know you said pulled pork but you didn't say pepperoni you're you are right <laughs> That doesn't mean you can't have it. You know, I usually okay. explain if if you want things like pepperoni, you know, take five slices, chop it into little pieces, and sprinkle it on. Because if you think about it, you're not trying to have a pepperoni in every bite. You just want to taste it. Yeah. So okay, I got maximize it. your flavor and your calories. Finally, fish. Ooh. Can you do fish on a grill? And what what type of fish should we grill? You want something that's not really flaky. You know, it'd be really hard to do like cod. But you want to do like a halibut, salmon, of course, shrimp, any type of uh, swordfish, tuna, something that's a little bit more steak-like is a little bit easier unless you have like a plank, like a wood plank that you're going to kind of grill it on. Um, But something to kind of keep in mind is a lot of times when you're grilling, think about this. Maybe you want to grill all week, but you don't actually want to fire up the grill every day. (laughs) So what you can do is maybe when you're grilling your chicken, grill your salmon as well, but don't grill it all the way. Get those grill marks, pull it off, let it cool, put it in the refrigerator. Tomorrow or the next day, you turn on your oven, you set a timer, and you finish cooking it to your final internal temp. And that's going to be kind of um, helping you with meal planning and making sure that you're still able to attain those flavors and that health benefit without having to do all that extra work. All right, quickly before we go, I know that people can come to the Mayo Clinic and actually see all of this firsthand and watch you cook and and you can teach them how to cook healthy. How do they get a hold of you? How do they sign up for a program? If you go to uh, mayoclinic.org, we have a healthy living program section on there and you can look for classes for our signature experience or our weight loss 
programs. All right, perfect. That's what you need to do to learn how to grill pizza. <laughs> <laughs> if they take my pepperoni away, I'm not going. <laughs> Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program Executive Chef Jennifer Welper. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayocliniqradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.